Hello, and welcome to the Currents of Folklore podcast. I am your host, Cherish Bishop, and today I am meeting with anthropologist and professor Dr. David Lewis from Oregon State University. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, um, thank you for joining us. And David, would you mind in introducing yourself? Sure, Cherish. Um, uh, I'm an um, associate professor uh, in anthropology and native studies at Oregon State University and uh, a member of the Confederate Tribes of Grand Ronde. Um, my ancestry is Chinook, uh, Saniam, and Tekelma from Western Oregon. So I, I do mainly research on tribal histories, tribal culture, and you know try to sort of understand what happened to our tribes over the last 166 years since we've been you know under colonization. So. And with your work as an associate professor there at, at Oregon State, can you talk about some of the courses that you teach? Yeah, I, I've been teaching pretty regularly uh, an Oregon uh, Natives course, which really kind of talks, uh, addresses the, the tribes of Oregon, you know, their histories, their cultures, different cultures. And um, I've been doing this for, you know, 15 years or more in the same class with new books sometimes. And it's one of the few classes like it, you know, really in Oregon at all. Um, then I also teach, you know, a lot of the intro to indigenous studies classes and classes like, you know, traditional ecological knowledge. And I even extend over into archaeology sometimes by teaching the CRM classes, the cultural resource management classes, where I'll, I'll have, you know, anthropologists, archaeologists in there who need to know the laws in terms of how to deal with tribes, um, how to consult with tribes, and what's the proper way to think about cultural resources of, of tribes rather than just as resources to be taken into museums. Within those courses, um, you mentioned oral histories. And in our last discussion, you had brought up the fact that oral histories have a lot of truth in them and there's importance to be to be uh, taken from that yeah oral histories um, are part of the tribal culture um, you know um, as we research on as we research tribal cultures and tribal histories uh, we also have to understand the context of how um, native people um, thought about their own history thought you know conceived of their own cultures and what they've gone through in the last 160 years or more uh, under sort of colonization by, by white Americans. And much of that time period, academics, scientists, scholars have ignored um, tribal oral histories as actual history. And so what we're doing now is sort of re-looking re at these histories, at the tribal stories to see how closely they may document some event in the past some of them actually are pretty good in terms of documenting huge floods, tsunami, you know, volcanic events, uh, a lot of, of things that can be proven by other means through geology or through archaeology or something. Uh, and so, um, so we, we line up a number of, of different um, factors in terms of, of deciding whether or not something is a true history or not. Uh, and some of them are, are just moral lessons and and it's part of the philosophy of the tribes, which is not so much different than any other philosophy that, that people study around the world, whether it's Western philosophy or Eastern philosophy, whatever you want to call it. 
uh, Native American or Indigenous philosophies are um, basically how we supposed how we're supposed to conceive of the world and how it's you know the proper way to conceive of this land because I believe that many of our old histories are you know talk about you know how we're supposed to you know relate to the land around us relate to people around us relate to animals and plants and uh, because these people lived in this land for you know, upwards of 16,000 years or more so you know that's a long time to sort of begin to sort of uh, have a relationship with this land. How would you characterize the relationship that your people have with the land? Um, yeah I mean we think of the land as kind of related to us because in many ways it is you know the animals and plants you know and even many landforms are you know have their own spirits they have there are brothers and sisters or relatives um, many of the of the large you know rocks off the coast are considered to be uh, people who you know violated some moral lesson and so they they, they froze as rocks and, and then our people have been here so many generations that really the so all the soil around us is the remains of our peoples because we're buried basically everywhere in the land. So, so really, you know, we're living within, you know, our, our own sort of cultural space, you know, uh, and have been doing so for a very long time. So that's kind of how we think of, of this place. We are, in many ways, we think of it as, as stewarding it as well, because a lot of times we'll, we'll take actions like, like setting fires of land or, 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 or harvesting parts of the land or or you know, deciding to harvest a piece and then leave a piece for for nature to, to revive itself or restore itself, you know, which is a relationship, not an exploitation. And you actually talk about these topics and several others on um, a blog that you you keep. Um, some of these articles that you talk about is traditional ecological knowledge. And going off of that, I would assume that this relationship that, that your tribes people have with the land is really what has built upon to create this tr traditional knowledge with environmental practices. That's exactly right, yeah. You know, um, our peoples have been colonized. Many people, many of our people have been heavily assimilated uh, in, into American society. And then we were terminated in the 1950s. You know, we've only been restored for some 30 something years. And so in this last 30 something years, many people have many people in our tribe have been trying to understand what happened to us. You know, what did we lose? What did we what have we forgotten over the period of, of colonization that was forced that we were forced to not believe in anymore, or forced to change our lifestyle or forced, you know, change to eliminate our culture or, or what or languages or whatever. And so we're trying to recover much of that so that we can restore our tribe and our culture in a, in a, in a, a, a positive way. And so, uh, and so that's what we're doing. The, the, the practice of TEK, you know, may not actually be what the end result we're doing here. We're actually trying to restore our whole people, you know, our, our culture, our, you know, our sovereignty, everything. TEK is a piece of that which is as us trying to understand or studying uh, the way in which that we interact with the land, how, we, how people should be interacting with the land, the lessons of the past, you know, as elders talk to, talk, talk to us about it or have 
you know, perhaps parts of it have been preserved or saved in archaeological or anthropological writings and, you know, in folklore and in oral histories and in all different different areas of study, including, you know, you know, people, you know, our elders who, who continue to hold these stories at times and we listen to them in terms of what they mean. And, and so we're, we're using every, everything we can uh, to sort of restore under this like title of TEK, traditional ecological knowledge, but really it's just native knowledge. It's just, the whole thing is part of who we are. And with that, you had mentioned also about fire management and that's a very um, relevant topic considering the fires that are going on up in the Northwest coast. In fact, on your blog, one of your pages where you discuss is climate change always the reason for wildfires? And you go through and you outline um, several points, but the last point, the 10th point, and, and I'm going to quote you here, you say native peoples, tribal nations have the understanding of how to manage their forests in a traditional way. Cultural experts need to be consulted about the appropriate way to set fires. New national forest land policy needs to be set to truly preserve our nation's forests. Until a new policy is set, we will continue to see massive forest fires every year. There is really no other way to maintain the nation's forests unless we are willing to denude the whole continent of forests. This is part of tribal people's understandings of their lands, their traditional ecological knowledge, which includes understandings of how to manage their lands they developed over the course of more than 10,000 years. And I found that really powerful, especially this, this concept of the knowledge that has been accumulated over tens of thousands of years. And I wondered if, if you would mind going off of that a little bit more. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. Like you said, um, I'm not sure how much further I can take it, <laughs> you know, either go back to the way we had it or, you know, mm-hmm. or, or die, you know, <laughs> you know, essentially. Um, I, I really think that in many ways, uh, many of the, of the, the states in the West, um, because there's so many forest lands, in fact, there's more, there's more national forests, there's more uh, federal forest lands under several different agencies than than there are people, you know, that there, you know, there's just way more lands uh, under forest than people even imagine, um, which is so big. And I think that, you know, there's, there's really no other way to sort of manage all this stuff. I mean, there's no, there's not enough chemicals in the world. There's not enough people in the world to sort of rake leaves as some people have said in the past, or, you know, there's not enough of that that can happen. It's just, the forests are just too massive. And, and I think that native people have, have known this for, thousands of years they, they realized that the forest is a vast resource and then they knew that they had to sort of keep themselves safe and if they didn't do something to manage their environment a little bit that, that they would be the victim of massive forest fires you know and you know we there's are actually oral histories of massive forest fires that have destroyed huge areas of the forest where people had to move around move away from them and I think people learn from that. The people of 5,000 years ago or, or even further, they're just as much of a scientist about the environment as we are today. They saw it was happening. They could see it was happening. They knew that previously burned areas were not going to burn again for a while. You know, they, they were smart. And uh, so they developed systems of, of just pre, of burning things every few years 
so that there wouldn't be so much fuel out there that you know when a fire comes along when the right conditions come along for a fire you know hot weather you know low low moisture big large winds that uh it wouldn't destroy their all their people and all their their food and everything else and so uh so they they develop ways of 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 managing their lands and uh tending to it and and they they could see because they live with the land you know on a daily basis they could see that after you burn an area you know on a regular kind of burn cycle like one two three year burn cycle the land recovers within a month everything's growing back and so you know they saw that and they realized that you know what they're really doing is is helping the land revive and and there's numerous tribes in the west that have these what they call world renewal celebrations they, they actually believe they have to do this in order to revive the world every single year because if they don't they know that 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 something's going to happen something's going to be destroyed they're not going to have enough food these this is all part of the tribal culture they, they've learned to adapt to the land and in, in in turn they've adapted the land you know to, to what they need and uh uh so i mean that's you know, uh, federal policy for like more than 100 years now has tried to preserve the forest lands, mainly, and, and that and because most uh, most of the federal programs that manage forest lands are are under the Department of, of of Agriculture, and so under an agricultural lens, which is really what it is, they want these are all crops, all the forest lands are crops, and so eventually everything is going to be like harvested. You know the, the the timber will be harvested under the policies, and so they they want to preserve as much as possible, and that's that in itself is a commendable idea. The problem is by assuming that fire is a negative thing and and, and eliminating fire, putting it out too fast, perhaps has created this huge problem where there's like way too much undergrowth, way too much fuel, and this has been building for in some areas 50 or more years you know where there's not been logging where there's not been forest fires and so they've created a base of the means of a giant firestorm at some point you know uh, there are very there are many communities in oregon and washington and idaho you know california that are surrounded by forest untended forests that have ne has not been seen fire for for 30 40 50 years and there, right now, we're seeing the result of that. We're seeing massive forest fires coming down and destroying whole towns, and and that's, you know, it's 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 a logical progression of what's going to happen. So I think that unless we go back to a more efficient policy of managing our forests, that we're going to see more of this until the state governments and the federal governments and local governments get a grasp of this concept and realize that this is the best thing they can that they can do. For the future, for even for the forest lands to revive it themselves, we're going to see more of this. And and I and I don't know how politicians are going to are going to react to this. Clearly, there's going to be positives and negatives, denials. You know, people saying they were lying about stuff in this new age of misinformation um, happens all the time. But but you know, there are experiments happening now. There are folks that are setting fires and documenting. Uh, the recovery of the lands after the fires and so i think that that's going to uh eventually in some areas it's going to win, win over so well 
I believe in our last conversation, you, we had talked about um, you know past academics not listening, and not just academics, but past scientists not listening. And you mentioned that we could be in a different place today with national policy if they did, if they if they if they did consult um, with cultural experts about topics such as traditional ecological knowledge. Um, and you also mentioned how you know they. Um, these cultural experts should not have to prove them themselves because they, yeah. they do have uh, tribal history, these, these oral histories that prove that, they, that there is experience with this, that there is past knowledge, that knowledge regarding environmental topics did not just crop, crop up in the past couple hundred years, but have been, been consistent throughout these, these 10,000 plus years since um, indigenous pe peoples have uh, started doc documenting this. Yeah, I, I think that that that's part. I think what you're getting at in terms of asking about the cultural piece is is important. I think that what we're seeing is that that I think many forest managers and many sort of uh, I guess forest ecologists are uh, beginning to realize that this is probably the direction that we have to go. I'm I'm now hearing you know radio shows and other presentations, even papers that address the idea of fire management, fire ecology as being the way we have to go to preserve everything. Um, uh, sometimes uh, I see these scholars kind of lift that knowledge from native peoples and not give credit to native culture, tribal cultures as having created that, that way of managing the land in the first place. Um, because you really can't, you, in my conception, you really can't lift that knowledge from native peoples basically you know, in a cultural theft way and not bring the culture with it. And so you have to have the people involved to represent the culture because the reason why you're setting land, the, the fire to land is so it can renew itself. And so unless you have that cultural piece about renewal in there and the things that are going to be renewed, like you know whether it's oak, oak trees and acorns or grasses or, you know, weaving materials or, you know, berry plants or whatever it is, uh, unless you have that as a, foc uh, a focus of what, of what you're trying to renew, um, you're, you're missing quite a bit. And, um, and then, then I've, you know, I've, I've criticized that as being another sort of colonial, almost a capitalistic enterprise when you, when you're, you take, you take this knowledge, you take this information from other people and you use it for your own purposes. And, and then your purpose is not necessarily to renew, it's just to save the timberlands from our harvest, from our logging. That's not the appropriate way to think about it. We, we, we need to be thinking about this land as not just as a resource, but as a living being that, you know, we, we live with and thrive with uh, along with them, along with it as kind of a relative. And that's that's the culture. That's part of what we're trying to say is that you have to have many people involved in this process. You can't lift that knowledge from us. Absolutely. This idea of fire, you know, renewing life, being able to restore life, which it's typically when when some th think of fire, they think of damage, they think of burning, right? And so it's, it's that, that's a hard shift, you know, for... Yeah. Um, to recognize that and acknowledge that, um, and I was and reading through through your blog, you know, you you talk about the whole concept of trees having bark specifically to protect it, so that it can renew itself once it's been burned away. That the life is still there. Absolutely. 
yeah, there are, yeah, there are some trees that are highly fire resistant, like oaks, and, and there are some trees like, you know, ponderosa pine. I don't know if you've ever seen a ponderosa or yellow pine bark, but it's like thick. I mean, it's really super thick. And so that's, I believe it's an adaptation to, to not just fight off, you know, insects and other diseases, but also fire, you know, because fire, if it comes along what we call a, 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 a cool burn, which has been burned regularly every few years, it's called a cool burn because it doesn't burn as hot, um, then it's only going to burn like the outer layer or two of bark, if that, and the tree inside is going to be safe. And that's that's the case with many trees. I mean, they're used to the 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 trees had to have adaptations to survive fire, and that's what people don't realize. And I think your other point about people not conceiving a fire being a good thing, just a negative thing, is because over the last 150 years, 120 years, you know, we've had this national policy that that says we need to put out fires, and 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 when every most people when they, when they look at what the, the destruction of a fire. Uh, what they see today is this massive thing that destroys whole forests, and that's what that's what's been happening. And uh, because they've never experienced this idea of annual or cool burning the forest so that you know the, the trees survive the the, the the forest fires, they never experienced that. All they've ever seen is huge destruction. They've seen you know firestorms and things. So that's why we're doing these test cases. So, and to show we, we can prove to forest managers and to just the public at large that, you know, that the, the whole landscape revives afterwards, that trees survive, the majority of trees survive and those that are weeded out, you know, uh, you know, make, just make it a, a better place uh, for the forest uh, in the long run. So that's, that's what we're doing. So going forward here, you said that, that cultural experts are working with Forest Service to have these cool burns, these test cases to prove that this works. Do you know, like, is there like a timeline on this? What is the project and how is it looking for the future? Well, there's a lot of small scale stuff happening. Um, there's some tests being ha happening with the, in some of the national forests. Uh, I've seen tests over the years with like Willamette National Forest up here in Oregon. I mean, we have some, you know, counties and stuff that are doing that are burning a few acres and they have the fire department there and they have fire experts there and they and they're they're learning how to do this so they can do it more and more and so there are many folks doing it in sort of a local experiment and if you will um on on various acreages and that's fine and i think that we're starting to prove on a local level that in certain areas that it works really well in in certain ideal conditions it works really well I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to start to experiment on whole forests or big partial, big parts of the forest and doing it in the right way. So that's where the culture comes in, the right way. You know, what is the right way? Well, tries would set these fires usually in the early fall when, it, when the rain started to come. Therefore, the land is a little bit damp, but they could burn off um, quite a bit of the, of the fuels by doing so. And and most tribes, and, and it's most tribes wouldn't set fires in the forest itself. They they set them in the prairies, but they allowed like wildfires to burn. I mean, there was never an attempt to put out wildfires. So, you know, that needs to be thought about. That needs to be thought about deeply. I mean, there, we can do it safely with towns and with settlements inside of a forest. You just have to do it in 
and you have to do it over and over again. So one of the th one of the 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 techniques I thought about is is when a forest fire comes through, like we had the big Sanium Canyon burn last year in Oregon. Uh, so it's been a year. If the forest, if the the state and 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 national experts would come in and reburn some of those those acre acres in the in the in the Sanium Basin again, in about two to three years. And then they did that, repeated that every every two to three years. You could actually see a revival of the whole landscape. Uh, you'd see it get healthier, and um, there would not be the danger of a of a massive firestorm coming through um, ever again if they just did it on a regular basis. So right now, to this year, that Sandium Canyon is the safest it's ever been because it just had a massive burn last year. So there, so even though folks, you know, when they see smoke over the hill and they say, well, there's a fire near, and, and they're in the basin today, they actually have no danger of it actually going through because it's been pre-burnt. Now, all of the, these um, test cases that are happening, um, is this something that you yourself are also helping to document or take note of for any archives? Um, yeah, I've actually, you know, I mean, I've been doing some intellectual thinking about that. You've seen my writings on, uh, and that's not, I don't have any actual experience setting these fires myself. I'm just kind of interpreting the knowledge that we do have as best I can and get it out to an audience of people who are trying to learn about tribal culture. I am, I am though, involved in, in a couple different organizations, uh, you know, like uh, expert fire you know, tenders organizations through the uh, Oregon State University. And we're working on, on projects uh, to set fires in, in culturally sensitive areas to do test cases. And I am helping that sort of coordination with tribes and stuff. How has that gone so far? Has it gone? It's going, it's going pretty well. I mean, they already have a pretty good organization. I'm just helping sort of think about it, think about how, how we, you know, what we could do with it. And, and because I'm an anthropologist, I, I can do also the anthropological studies around it, you know, the, the ethnographic research to find more sources, more methods that maybe things that we hadn't thought about or some of the elders haven't, haven't recalled yet. Um, and then do, doing the uh, sort of environmental anthropo anthropological studies afterwards where you, you watch the land, you take pictures of it, you document what happens after the fires. And, uh, and and watch it revive, and then from that we can create um, a pretty good narrative, a good image of of the results of fire as not being uh, destructive, but being like what the tribes have, have have called it for now generations, probably centuries, uh, a, a kind of a world renewal, uh, renewing the landscape. Well, what other projects are you working on? Well, besides the fire, uh, I'm, I'm doing some fire work. We're doing some culturally modified tree work because uh, there's lots of tribes in the area that would take bark off trees for either making baskets or eating um, the inner bark. Uh, we're doing projects on, I'm doing projects on um, studying the treaties and uh, the, the period of removal of the tribes to the reservations in around 1855, 1856. So I'm doing a lot of like archival work, finding documents that help tell the story. You know, I found recently a, a bunch of censuses that we didn't have before. Um, 
and you know, a couple of pages for a, a treaty we didn't have before. My work is really kind of essentially reconstructing the image of our, the history and the, the image of our culture in the past. Um, something that really hasn't been done from a trial perspective in a while. A lot of times, you know, you can go out and buy umpteen books on Native Americans in the store. The vast majority, some 99% of them written by non-Native people. Many of them have learned from, you know, past mistakes of scholars and of not talking to Native people. And so they, they do have some benefits of having, you know, spoken with Native elders or whatever. But uh, the vast majority of that little source out there don't talk with Native people at all. They're just interpreting, you know, either federal sources or, or, or their own ideas, uh, anthropological sources. Uh, so what we're doing is, is having to reanalyze all this, this historic content from the past. You know, the things that have been written, the, the, the primary documents, the federal accounts, the Native accounts when we can find them, um, and reconstruct... Uh, a native perspective, history of the past, cultures of the past, and how the cultures had to change or were forced to change along with um, settlement and colonization in our area. And that sort of reconstructed history is a long has been a long term project of, of mine for some twenty five years, uh, and that helps you know inform all like you're saying TEK the fire ecology. Because a lot of times what people are doing with fires are trying to restore the land. And, you know, like what the tribes are doing, and there's lots of folks in the valley that, you know, in this area, they're trying to restore, you know, oak savannas or camas prairies or whatever it is, you know, the native landscape trying to restore it. But I'm saying, you know, what do you know about the original landscape? Do you really have a good image of that? What it was like? So I'm, so my work is trying to reconstruct that uh, from a trial perspective and from other perspectives on, you know, what was the landscape like? You know, if the Native people were tending it for tens of thousands of years, what were they tending it for? You know, and are we going to reincorporate Native culture today once you have created your oak savanna? And so I'm asking these key questions, you know, like Native people would, would tend to the oak groves to, to collect acorns because they were eating the acorns as food. Like if we're doing a restoration today, are the people who want to do the, the oak savanna on their property, are they going to start, you know, gathering acorns for food? If they're not, are they going to allow native people to come in and gather food? If not that, then, then what are you actually creating? You know, are you creating a stewarded lands landscape that we can actually use the food on? And if you're not doing, if you're not going to use the food, why are you creating that landscape? Why don't you just let it grow back uh, naturally? So there's lots of questions there. You know, what, Sometimes we don't have any answers for it, but lots of questions as to, you know, are, are people just assuming they know what the, what the original landscape was like, why it was like it, what it was like, the food on it, the plants on it, or um, are we working from a place of knowledge that, you know, of an actual image of that landscape? Well, thank you so much. If people are, are interested in the work that you're doing, where is the best place that they can go to to access that? Well, I'm pretty readily available. I'm at OSU. Um, I'm in the their system, so you can look me up, David Lewis, OSU. There's a couple of us there, two David Lewis's. I'm in anthropology, uh, ethics studies, uh, or my blog. Um, it's I call it the Cortex Journal. Cortex is a was some sort of a, a wolf spirit um, 
um, of the Calaquians. Um, I kind of like that idea. Uh, 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 the journal is has more than 460 essays now of uh, all manner of subjects about history and culture of the tribes, mainly of Western Oregon, some Northern California, you know, some other places, but um, mostly Western Oregon tribes, which is, you know, my, my related tribes, uh, tribes that came to Grand Ron and stuff. So, um, you know, we were not a tribe that only had one native, one trial of people come to our, our reservation. We had at least, you know, 27 to 48 tribes come to Grand Ronde and had to, they weren't lived, learned to sort of live together and work together. So, um, so it's a, it's a huge body of, of research I've undertaken to try to understand the majority of those tribes, try to understand what they went through, how they, you know, what they had to, you know, deal with, with settlement, with colonization, how they confederated, integrated together, how they signed the treaties together, moved on to the reservation and what happened on the reservation. Uh, so that's all these articles on, the, on that blog. It's at the uh, Cortex Journal. If you look me up and the Cortex Journal, uh, I'm pretty available online, so. Thank you so much for your time, David, for, for talking with me today and sharing all this information about traditional ecological knowledge. It's, it's a very broad topic with a lot underneath it, but an important one. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak to me. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this has been, it's been fun. My thanks to Dr. Lewis for meeting with me today. If you wish to get in contact with him or want to learn more about his research, you can find his contact information and links to his work in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Mm -hmm.